So good morning. How are you? You're good. You look good. So, you know, glad you're here. Maybe you could just fist bump the person beside you and say, glad you're here. I'm going to say, glad you're here. Some of you aren't fist bumping your neighbor. So I'm going to assume that you're still glad they're here, even if you're not acting like it. Whew. All right. So, all right. All right. It seems everybody's kind of happy, happy to see each other or happy enough to tolerate one another. And that's awesome. I appreciate that. Uh, you ever hear about something so amazing that you, you are sure you're never going to see it in real life? Like a, like a Sasquatch or a printer that just prints without any problems? How are we in 2024 and printers don't just print? It's not that hard. Okay? Uh, you know, but something too good to be real, in other words. But so suppose for a moment this legendary thing, the thing you couldn't think existed, is, is now in front of you and all your senses are overwhelmed. You don't know if you, you should laugh or cry or hug somebody or punch somebody. That's how I felt this past fall when I stepped into this mind-blowing wonderland known as a Brazilian steakhouse. Now, my sincerest condolences to any vegetarians and vegans who may be listening to this. You have my blessing to tune me out for about two minutes. It was a warm November evening on a work trip to Atlanta. And the sweet savor of searing beef and wood smoke greeted me at the door like an old friend and something deep inside stirred. A primal Neanderthal longing and I could hear the voices of my hunter-gather ancestors speaking to me, urging me forward. They sounded a lot like my dad for some reason, because the Shockleys are, we were pretty much hunter-gatherers in the 80s. That's kind of how, in the 90s, that's, that's how we were living. Now, you know, we've settled into more of an agricultural economy at this point. But we were hunter-gatherers not so long ago. The noise in the crowd could not draw my attention away from the left side of the room where huge chunks of meat were roasting over an open flame skewered on swords the way nature intended. A waiter ushered us onto a path that wound around a series of buffets and then placed us at the table whereupon a man approached bearing one of these swords laden with the very finest ribeye and he drew a small knife and he carved a medium rare piece off which I received with great emotion. Um, to say it was delicious is to say a sunrise is beautiful. It just, you can't find the words to to appreciate the symphony of flavor and texture that was happening in that moment. And that was only the beginning of a procession of servers in crisp black vests passing by our table, offering us the finest cuts of beef, one by one. And at long last, after some great time, my inner carnivore was satisfied, and I let the server know with some small amount of regret that I was done. Of course, we skipped one part of the story, you know, the buffets that we passed. Lots of good stuff there, all kinds of breads and, and desserts and salads and veggies. Fine things, of course, but I took only the, the merest sampling because my real business was with the beef. 
Now imagine if we had passed that buffet and I had seen a big bunch of yeast rolls and they were there. You know, anybody love yeast rolls? I mean, who doesn't love yeast rolls? Uh, it's good stuff. So um, the, the yeast rolls were, were there. Well, imagine if I had loaded up a plate with yeast rolls and when I'd sat at the table and one of the sword-bearing meat mongers passed by and offered me this delicious goodness and I said, no, no, thank you. I'm just here for the yeast rolls. That would not make sense at all. Now, I realize not everybody's into steak, and that's fine. That leaves more steak for me. I get it. It's okay. But why, if all you wanted was yeast rolls, why would you go to a steakhouse? Why would you bother? Now, look, I, I am not here to pick on picky eaters. If you're one of the people who just eat the yeast rolls, you do you, boo. That's fine. I'm here to tell you about another banquet that has been set before you. Far greater than any steakhouse or salad bar or pan of yeast rolls. God has set a banquet of truth before you. And it's all good stuff. Even the stuff that's not so sweet and not so easy to swallow. Now near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, he had an encounter with some religious leaders who were, I guess we'll call them picky eaters, spiritually speaking. Uh, spiritually, they were like... The kids who no matter what restaurant you take them to, they're going to order chicken nuggets and fries. Maybe you're still one of those kids, and that's okay. But when God offers you such a banquet, don't be content with like just to get the pudding, you know what I mean? God has got so much good for you, and you shouldn't miss any of it. Even the stuff that, that challenges you, that's a little difficult. These spiritual leaders we're going to talk about today, they were content with a few little spiritual principles to nibble on that made them feel pretty good. They refused the parts of the Word of God that held them accountable, and as a result, they, they missed out a lot. So the core of what I want to communicate today is this. So if you're like, want to know what, what this is about, if you remember this phrase, you'll be, you'll be okay. Truth demands transformation. Truth demands transformation. If you are uh, receiving the word of God and it does not prompt you to become someone different or someone closer to God, you are missing a huge part of it. You're, you're missing the whole banquet. You're just nibbling on the rolls. So um, don't, uh, don't miss out on the banquet of God because some of it isn't as sweet and easy as other parts. So uh, we're going to Mark chapter 12. Verses 18 through 27, rather than kind of taking it all in at a chunk, we're just going to take a one, one bite of this buffet at a time, one bite of this banquet at a time. So let's, let's read the first verse and we'll pray. Then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and they asked him a question. Let's stop there and pray. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, please speak to us now. Help us to understand you've laid so much before us and give us a heart to receive it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are the Sadducees? Well, we hear about the Pharisees a lot. So who are these guys, the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees were the rivals of the Pharisees. They were kind of like political parties almost, but religious political parties that would, they were both trying to have control of the Jewish high council, which is called the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees are the ones we hear about because they're much more numerous. They're well known. They were more came, coming from the 
the ranks of the common people. Lots of rabbis in local synagogues were Pharisees. A lot of the most famous rabbis who wrote that we have historical records on were the Pharisees. They were pretty well respected, even though Jesus calls them out for hypocrisy most of the time. They were, at least in that culture, uh, well-respected people and thought of as being very faithful. Now, the Sadducees were different. They came from wealthy, powerful, aristocratic backgrounds. They weren't spread all over. Most of them were concentrated in Jerusalem. And even though there were far fewer Sadducees, they had the seats of power in the Sanhedrin. They had the most power. The high priest was a Sadducee. His father was a Sadducee. Almost all of the most powerful people were Sadducees. Now, you would expect the, the high priest and the group that's associated with the high priest to be the group that, that has the most comprehensive belief, right? You'd think they would be the ones most bought in. Not so. The Sadducees believed in only five of the 39 books of the Bible. They only believed in the first five, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the rest of it they did not pay attention to, and they didn't believe everything that was in the first five books. They did not believe in angels or spirits or anything supernatural. They didn't believe in any kind of afterlife, no heaven, no hell, no rewards, no punishment, no resurrection. If spiritual truth was a banquet, these were the guys who were just picking at the rolls in the basket on the table. That first basket of rolls, that's, that's what they were doing. So the text of Mark's gospel tells us one thing specific here that they did not believe in. And what does that say? According, according to the scriptures, they did not believe in the resurrection. So the question they're going to ask has everything to do with the resurrection. It is not a genuine question. That would be like somebody saying, what kind of dog food is best when everybody knows they don't, they, they don't like dogs. They like cats instead. So it's, it's, it's an ingenuous question. Uh, it's kind of like the, the, someone saying the Flat Earth Society has members all over the globe. And it doesn't add up. So here's, uh, the Sadducees are going to ask a question. And really, the real question is about resurrection, which they didn't believe in. They're just kind of setting Jesus up to fail here. At least they hope. Now brace yourselves. This is something that's going to cover something that's a little uncomfortable okay it's a little weird in our culture verse 9 we'll, we'll read down verse 9 through about verse 23 they asked this question teacher moses wrote to us that if a, if a man's brother dies and let me clarify moses was the author of the the uh, transcriber of the first five books of the bible so they're saying you know in the scriptures in the little part of the scriptures they actually believe wrote to us <coughs> that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers in this scenario, and, and the first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, and nor did he leave any offspring, and the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife shall she be? For all seven had her as a wife. What did they not believe in? The resurrection. What are they asking about? The resurrection. So they don't really care about that. They're just trying to trip Jesus up. So what, a, what an unusual tradition. This is called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. It was a tradition that went back from before Abraham. 
It was very old. And the idea was if a man left behind, uh, died and left behind his widow with no children, his brother was supposed to marry the widow and have a child with her that would, be, that would inherit the property of the deceased. That feels very weird in our culture. Dudes, don't be kind of giving, don't be giving your eye to your sister-in-law. You're going to get hurt. That's bad juju right there. Don't do it. Um, it, is, it is not what we would expect in our culture, but let me tell you, it made a lot more sense in ancient culture. Uh, for most of human history, there were zero protections for widows. Widows, unless they had a lot of money, the only real opportunity they had for stability and safety was to be to remarry or to have a, adult children who could care for them. Um, widows were very vulnerable in the ancient world to being exploited and trafficked and enslaved. Unless a widow had somebody to provide for her, the only chance they had was, is, was to get married, to have kids. Now, is that fair? No. We never said it was fair. It's just the way it was. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that God was not going to leave it that way. It was just better than the alternatives. You see, if that makes you bothered that, that widows were exploited, it, it should. But understand, it's only after the influence of the teaching of Christ that we now have some social support systems for widows and vulnerable people. That's happened after. Our culture now sort of forgets that a lot of the good things that we enjoy came from Jesus' people creating them. There weren't, there weren't social support systems. There wasn't help for widows. There, there wasn't help for orphans. There, there, wasn't help for, there wasn't anything as charitable medical care or anything like that until the teaching of Jesus made an impact on the world. So God has brought about change there through the teaching of Christ, but this is talking about before then. And God took a hopeless situation and at least gave it some hope. I can only imagine it was an awkward arrangement. Most people, most of the time we see it in the Old Testament, they weren't so enthusiastic about the idea. Not so much because they didn't want another wife, but because they didn't want to raise a kid that was not going to be legally considered their kid. However, there is one famous love story in the Old Testament, one of the most famous love stories of all, that was based in Leveret marriage. Ever heard of Boaz and Ruth? That was one of those cases. So sometimes it worked out pretty good. Well, let's not get sidetracked here. The Sadducees were not asking about this complicated topic because they wanted Jesus to explain it because they were sincerely hoping that he would help them make sense. Leveret marriage wasn't even widely practiced at that time when this was happening in the first century. They weren't really doing that, not for a long time. They just want to trip Jesus up. They want to confuse him. They're asking how marriage works in the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection at all. Jesus answers them. Verse 24. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? He calls these men out for being spiritual leaders who didn't really believe in spiritual things. They accepted the spiritual truths that made them feel confident and made them feel superior, and they rejected the spiritual truths that held them accountable and required them to change their lives. They said they believed in God, 
But they did it on their own terms. They did not want to change. Well, things are about the same now. Most people would say, if you ask them, do you believe God exists? Most people would still say yes. Like over 80% of Americans still say yes. If you ask them, what well, do you think God is involved in our lives or cares about our lives? Probably still most people would say yes. But when it comes down to the idea that God is someone who can tell them how to live their lives, boy, that gets kind of sticky. That's the place where it gets gummed up. Most people have a view of God that is all about affirmations, um, the idea that uh, spirituality is all about God fulfilling our desires, that, that faith is about us doing what we want to do and getting God's stamp of approval on it. Well, that sounds kind of nice, except we're notoriously bad at knowing what's really good for us. We think every m- most of the bad deals that you've gotten a part of or bad relationships you've gotten a part of, it sounded like a good idea at the time and it wasn't so good after all see we can't simply take the bits of spiritual truth that are comfortable and then refuse the parts that challenge us truth demands transformation how can i how can i explain this have you ever been responsible for a toddler so you got some ptsd from that yeah me too me too toddlers do not understand why they cannot carry the cat by its head or flush a toothbrush down the toilet or run out into busy traffic. They do not understand that. They think you are being unreasonable when you tell them that they cannot do these things. They do not get it. And so toddlers, one of the problems, you know, the the toddler years, they're very frustrated because they're being asked to behave in a way they don't understand. We are not so different. God has some expectations for us that we may not understand. That why, why have I got to live this way? Why have I got to do this? Why have I got to forgive that person? Don't you know what they did, God? Why have I got to be honest when it's going to hurt me to be honest? I don't understand. And yet, yet God requires that of us. And we may find ourselves frustrated and confused about why things the way are the way they are. Nobody likes being frustrated or confused, but I'm telling you right now, Spiritually speaking, being frustrated and confused is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Why? Because it's the opportunity now for you to learn and to grow. Because you have run into something you don't know how to deal with. And this is your chance to deal with it. Goliath was the first giant David ever fought. But it wasn't the last. You know, Goliath had like four brothers. You don't ever hear about that. You only hear about the first one because that's the first one he saw and he knew how to deal with the giant after that. And then the other four is just like a footnote in history. They like get a couple of verses and that's it. Let me tell you, you're going to run into some stuff that's your giant. That is your source of confusion or frustration. You say, God, why is it like this? This is your opportunity to learn how to deal with that giant and grow. And the next time you see one, you're just going to go get the sling out. And say, oh, well, I got another giant. All right, let's go get f- some smooth stones from the brook. And we're going to hit him right in the forehead because that's how you bring down a giant, according to the last time. It's your opportunity. The Sadducees, their life was pretty easy. They had it easy. They didn't feel like they had to transform. They, they were the big shots. They were supposed to be the guys in charge. But they didn't embrace the whole truth. Because the whole truth required them to be different. So verse, verse 25, Jesus explains this a bit more. 
For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So let's clear the air on something here about marriage in heaven. Relationships will be different in eternity. On earth, the greatest bond between two people is marriage. But in heaven, we will relate to people on a different level, more like the angels relate to one another. And the idea that there won't be marriage as we understand marriage in heaven, well, that might be upsetting. Depending on how the ride to church went this morning, of course. If it was a rough morning, you're like, you know, I could use a little space for eternity. But probably most of the time you're like, I don't know, heaven when I'm when I'm I'm not married to this this big hunk of man over here. I I know, I know it's it might be it might be um, it doesn't feel so good. So that's one of those things that we might come to in the scriptures and like, oh, I don't know about that. I don't think I like that. But then that's the opportunity to grow in your understanding. And to say, okay, let's find out why this is the case. Let me understand fully what this means. This is my opportunity to trust God while your understanding catches up. You're going to have to do that sometimes to take God at his word. And then eventually you'll you'll begin to understand it. It's like when you're a toddler, you you say, okay, you you cannot do that. You you cannot play with a lighter. Um, And they're like, why can't I? Just trust me on it. We can't, you know, our insurance isn't that good. Um, you do not need to be playing with that lighter. And eventually they understand, eventually they understand that, okay, we can't, we can't play with a lighter. So Jesus affirms two major truths here, neither of which the Sadducees believe. Number one, the existence of life after death. And number two, the reality of a, of a bodily resurrection. And he refers to this burning bush incident. Go check that out. That's a neat story. In the book of Exodus, that's one of the few books of the Old Testament they actually believed. So he's drawing on what they say they believe. And in the burning bush, God speaks to Moses through this this bush that was on fire. And it was not being consumed by the fire. It was a, a miracle and supernatural. And one of the things that the Sadducees didn't believe was in, in the supernatural. So it seems like if you're going to be a spiritual leader and you don't believe in the supernatural, what in the world, guys? I mean... That's like a key part of it, that you believe there's, God has power to affect the world. So in that story, God spoke to Moses, and he identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At the time when that episode happened, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years. They were dead, and yet God spoke as if these individuals were living. Why is that? It's because the human soul is immortal. Your body's going to give out and die. But that's not the end of you. It's not like, okay, well, we're done. Punched my ticket. And then psh, nothing for eternity. It's not like the lights are switched off. There's a life after this life. And then there's the, the second part, the resurrection part of eternity, where, you know, when, when you, a believer passes away, their spirit goes to be with the Lord, but the day is coming when. The bodies will be raised and remade, not in the shape they were when they died. 
you know, but remade and glorified and perfected and, and we'll be able to spend eternity, not like a ghost floating around or anything, but as in a, in a material form that can experience all the goodness and the glory of God and all that he's got for us. It's a really, really, really good thing. The seeds of the idea of the resurrection were all throughout the Old Testament. This is one of them. And uh, they were fully developed in the New Testament. So the evidence is there. Why didn't the Sadducees believe in the resurrection when the truth was there? Why was it more convenient for them to not believe in the resurrection? Why did they not want to believe in life after this life? Well, maybe because the life they were in at the moment was pretty good. They were wealthy, powerful, influential people. They had the money. They had the recognition. Their view of spiritual truth put them on top and allowed them to look down at everybody else. They could feel superior. The idea of afterlife, well, that messes it up, doesn't it? If we say that this life is not all there is and God is going to be keeping in account that he will, he will call us on after this life, then suddenly having wealth and power and prestige in this world is limited in value. Now, look, you should work hard. You should show up at work tomorrow. And you should work really hard and do your best, even if it's not appreciated, because God sees it and God will reward it. But even if you have super amount of success on earth, that's not the end of the story. Having success on earth is not necessarily the indicator that things are right with you spiritually, that things are right with God. You see, if, if there is life after this and there's an account after this, then all of what we gain on earth is temporary. Only a fraction of existence. If this life is all there is, then the Sadducees were definitely winning. But if there's more to life than this world, then the Sadducees might lose. See, in, in light of eternity, earthly success is of limited value. There's another reckoning coming. And the, other, the reckoning might reshuffle the whole deck. Those who are last on earth might be first in heaven. And those who are first on earth might not be in heaven at all. The Sadducees had it wrong. This life isn't all there is. And if you don't embrace the truth and the transformation that comes with it, man, you might miss the whole thing. So we started this message in a steakhouse. Let's just take it to, to our house. You know, We're going to have another, another meal here. You know, every family um, has their own idea of of what kids are expected to eat off their plate and what they're allowed to to leave. And when me and Katie got married and had kids, we kind of had to agree upon what our expectations were there. I wasn't really any help because I pretty much ate everything that could not run from me uh, and some of the things that could. I'd just catch them. So my, I never remember mom saying to me, say, Michael, you didn't you didn't clean your plate. She said, Michael, you've had thirds. You should probably stop. Good stuff. But, you know, you got to work it out when you, get, when you get married. You know, my wife's in the, in the kids' area, so y'all don't, like, narc on me if this doesn't come out right. But, you know, she different meal traditions. Like, like when she grew up, they would have spaghetti and, and wouldn't necessarily put a whole lot in it. And my family, mom, would, we would have some meat and throw some spaghetti noodles in with it. It's a little different philosophy. Uh, so we had to agree upon, you know, what we were going to expect our kids to, I was no help because I just, I, I ate all of it. Um, but she said in her house, there was a, a rule, they called it the, the no thank you portion. 
right? The no thank you portion that if part, you know, this part of this, this is part of our meal. And if you don't like it, that's okay. You don't have to like it. But if it is something healthy and nutritious, you're going to be expected to eat a little bit of it. They called it the no thank you portion. So that, that worked. And I'm like, hey, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. So our kids have always gotten, if, even if they don't like it, they get a little bit of it. And uh, I'm not going to ask them how they feel about that rule that we had here in this public setting because they'll probably get so emotional about how positive they thought it was and they would gush over what fabulous parents we were and, and how the no thank you portion rule has made them healthier, stronger, wiser, more resilient people. And I don't want to, I actually, honestly, I don't know that they appreciated it so much at the time, but long-term nutrition was more important than short-term enjoyment that's how spiritual truth can be as well y'all not all spiritual truth is sugary sweet some of it is hard to swallow some of it is even bitter when it makes you face the stuff you've got to face but just as your body would be unhealthy if all you ever ate was yeast rolls and pudding your soul will be unhealthy if you only embrace the truth of the word of god that is sweet and easy and does not require you to change. The Sadducees refused the resurrection, which is one of the best things ever because it required some accountability on their part. And that's why they're so sad, you see. They're so sad, you see. Hmm. That is good. That is top shelf humor. Aren't you glad you came today? They're so sad, you see, because they missed out. They missed out on eternal rewards because they thought life on earth was pretty good. Now, you have an advantage over these Sadducees, unless, unless you are like hiding your secret millionaire status. You know, you're you know, you're probably not living an aristocratic lifestyle where you just, you know, got tons of money and all of that. So, okay. So you got the advantage. You can look around and say, hmm, there's got to be something better than this. You ever noticed all those old bluegrass songs are about, you know, about heaven are like, man, life on earth's pretty hard, but hey, heaven's coming because that was the reality that we've lived in. And most of us will have that reality that life is going to be pretty tough and pretty challenging, sometimes extremely challenging. So the idea of a life beyond this one sounds pretty good. But that's not really the point here. The point is this. You've got to embrace the truth that demands transformation. If you are studying the Word of God and it does not convict you to deal with the junk in your life, you're doing it wrong. My challenge to you today is to partake of the whole banquet. Don't just eat the bread in the basket. Have the bread, but get some of the meat too. Get some of the veggies. Get some of all that good stuff. I dare you to do this. Make time to study the Word of God and absorb it. You say, well, I don't have time. I understand, y'all. I work a whole nother job besides this. I get it. But you say you don't have time. Well, so when I sit down to read my Bible, I fall asleep. I get it. When I sit, I'm, I'm in my 40s. When I sit down, I fall asleep every time. 
and my, my wife and my kids make fun of me, and they do not understand that I'm, I'm working for my family, and I'm the breadwinner. I'm out there winning the bread, and when I sit down, I'm just so exhausted from winning their bread that they're enjoying. And I sit down, and the chair just takes me. I don't take naps. Naps take me. It's, I was unwilling. And, and what do they do? What do they do when they see their poor father all tired and tuckered out because he's been out there winning the bread? Do they cover him up with a blanket and kiss his forehead and say, oh, my sweet daddy who provides for us. All these good things like Wi-Fi and electricity and food are provided from the hard work of my father. I should honor and respect him. Do they do that? No. They painted my toenails one time. I understand tired. I understand tired. And that's only like a fraction of tired of what it is to like be a mom. So, uh, but we're not going to say that in this space. Look, I understand tired. You don't have time. You fall asleep. I get it. But I'm also going to assume that you brush your teeth, right? And most people have a smartphone. And you can download a Bible app on your smartphone. And while you're brushing your teeth, which you should do anyway, let the Bible app play. I do that every morning. You can get a few minutes in. You probably do some other things besides brush your teeth. Play the Bible app. Absorb it. If you, got, if you can at all possible sit down with the Bible in your hand, do that. Take notes. Highlight it. Engage in the Word of God. No excuses. You can do this. If I'm finding time, you can find time. And then when you get to some parts of the Bible that make you feel a little uncomfortable... They're like, I don't know if I want to live my life that way. Then stop and study harder on that. Don't just keep plowing through. Stop and sort that out. Okay? And, and maybe, maybe there's some context there that you don't understand. Like if you read through the law of leverage marriage, God's not requiring that of us anymore. So you don't need, to, don't need to hit the panic button on that because you understand it in context. But it's important that you understand it. And when you get to something that convicts you and you're like, you know what? That's right. And I'm not living that way. That's when you give it to God and you grow. That's when you really get into that banquet, folks. So there's my challenge to you. Find time for the Word of God somehow. No excuses. Even a little bit. Even a chapter. Even a few verses. Something. And then let God deal with your heart. Because that's how you're going to grow. Do not be content to be like a surface level Christian. Like a like only getting the mac and cheese and the yeast rolls off the buffet here. Get all the good stuff. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, please, Lord, awaken us to the challenge to take in your word of God. It's a banquet. It's a banquet, Lord, and I pray we won't just take the things that are sweet and easy, but we'll dig in and we'll find the places where we don't understand and we'll grow in our understanding Almighty God, we praise you for the gift of your word and ask that you'd help us be people who believe it and live by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being a part of this today. You are a blessing to me. I'm going to ask you to do one more uh, thing for me. Katie has some dental surgery this week, and given her health history, well, you know, she's got a complicated health history. Pray for her this week, okay? And hopefully she'll be back next Sunday and looking, you know, feeling pretty good and the swelling is down and all that. So pray for my sweet Katie, all right? All right, well, that's it. You're free to go. Go make some time for the Word of God today. No excuses. We'll see you next time.